Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. In 1986, Paul McCartney put out a ground-changing album called Press to Play, which many years later is still celebrated as... Uh, are we are we really doing a press to play episode, Stephen? Has it has it come to this? Is this the sound of a nothing is real barrel being scraped, or do we actually have a point to make? We actually have a point to make. I'm not saying the barrel isn't being scraped, but <laughs> no, we have a point to make. We definitely have a point to make, and we are in the way of nothing is real going to completely change everyone's opinion about this album. Yes, and sometimes the bottom of the barrel is where the tasty stuff resides. I, I find. I see what you're saying, but we're we're, we're <laughs> our aim is to rehabilitate this album in the eyes of the listeners and in the ears of Paul McCartney. Yes, we want Paul to to fall in love with the album again because we know he listens. And this probably, I think we're approaching this in a way where uh, perhaps we thought it might be fun to do a press-to-play episode. And then once you start scratching the story apart, you're like, actually, this is an interesting story and it has just as much of a story to tell as any other record. And its reputation isn't quite as deserved as, as it is, because it does have this reputation of being the worst one. It really does have that reputation, and I, I do think it is completely undeserved. And I enjoyed this album when it came out. Obviously, I was a child of the 80s, and uh, <laughs> that's why. But I really do think this album is a good album. I'm not saying it's the best thing he ever did, but it's certainly not the worst thing. And I think it's a very ill-deserved reputation, it tells you a lot about Paul's character, about where he was emotionally and sort of mentally, what his mental state was in 1984, 5, 6, 87. And I think it's just a fascinating story. It, yeah, and uh, what, like, I don't think there's any Paul McCartney album that is without merit. There is always something no. interesting going on. Um, and I probably would have been in the press to play as rubbish camp and... Just like just like you did with Dark Horse, I've kind of come round to its charms. Yes. Um, there is certainly no other album like it in the Paul McCartney no. canon. If there is an album like it, you might almost think it's like a Fireman album, and we can come back and discuss that later on. But it's, as, as a standalone Paul McCartney solo record, the way it's put together, the way it comes out, the sound of it, it is unlike any other. It absolutely is. And it sounds different. The songs are written in a different way to solo Paul material. It comes out over a hugely protracted period uh, of sessions. Uh, the promotion is different. And Paul has had ups and downs in critical, you know, his critical standing over the years. He's not in a good place when this album comes out. Um, I think that has shaken his confidence. We're talking here about that film that can't be mentioned there's a very concentrated attempt on his part to do something different. And I think on those terms, I think this album works spectacularly well. And as as we've said before in the show, Paul's solo career always is best looked at with uh, the benefit of hindsight and looking at it as a whole. And when you look at Press to Play, it is a transitional record. There's the kind of tug of war era beforehand. There's the flowers in the dirt era afterwards. And, you know, it's this border 
space between those two ways of working. There's a lot of things, and we'll hit on this in the episode, there's a lot of things he does on Press to Play that he's never done before that he will go on to do again, co-writers, different producers, all these kind of things. You know, he's trying to figure out new ways of working. And what can we ask out of any artist except something unique and looking at new ways of working and trying new things? You know, that's what Paul's always been about. Exactly that. And I think on those terms, it is a successful project. He's also something you didn't mention. He's coming to terms with digital technology. It's a new studio. It's the Hog Hill studio is up and running. It's just up and running. It's still being constructed at the start of these sessions. They're working on analog desks, but they've got digital mixers. And he will give interviews at the time about this is interesting technology and you know you need to get to grips with it and all the rest. I think I always like to say, you know, which of those 60s rock royalty actually had a good 80s? Very few. Mm. And I think one of the issues for that generation is suddenly they clock out on a Friday and they know exactly what they're dealing with in the studio. They come back in on the Monday and everything's gone digital. And they have to learn an entirely new way of working and recording and mixing. And I think that throws a lot of people. And Paul is coming to terms with it. He also brings in outside people to help on a production side in a way that he hasn't done before. Um, you know, he's been working with George Martin, but he's generally does not work with outside external producers before this point, or if, if he tries, like Glyn Johns coming in, in that sort of a role in, in Red Rose Speedway, it, it fails spectacularly. So, yeah, there's a lot going on. Yeah, you're right. The 80s is an odd time for the, the 60s artists, and certainly as a child of the 80s myself, when I'm first becoming musically cognizant, um, in the 80s, the 60s are kind of held up as this, you know, it was the best time ever for music. And I have a couple of theories that I like to apply to things. But one is, I think in 1986, rock music was still evolving somewhat. I kind of think rock music Mm. stopped evolving with grunge in the early 90s. We kind of solidified into a Rick Rubin-esque sound of how rock records are supposed to to be like. Uh, And and, and in in the 80s, you know, you still have kind of evolutions in rock sound, you know, from that kind of 1970s solid state Fleetwood Mac sound into that early 80s kind of Jimmy Iovine sound into the Hugh Padgham sound of Peter Gabriel and uh, Phil Collins in the early 80s. The digital sounds are kind of Dave Stewart. So there is a, you know, you can pick out a record from the first half of the 70s, last half of the 70s, first half of the 80s, last half of the 80s, and you can roughly guess where that record has come from. And I think in the last 30 years, that's a lot harder to do with rock records is to put a finger on and and see where they are. So Paul is one of these people. And if any year in the 80s was particularly mean to 60s musicians, it was 1986, because we have The Stones' Dirty Work also comes out that year, which also has a, a shrugging of the shoulders. But these people were pioneers. They were in their early 40s and people thought, lock up your grandmothers, uh, all the 60s people need to be taught a lesson. But for press to play in particular... Uh, let's kind of do a little bit of the background because Paul had been busy between 1970 and 1983. He had put out almost an album a year. He had, you know, if you include Wings and everything else, he'd put out 12 albums between 70 and 83, 84. And uh, he'd had this interesting run of 82, 83, 84, where in the wake of John's death, Tug of War is quite well received. Yes, the entire world was waiting for that album to come out. This was going to be McCartney's statement on the death of his long-term partner. And I think the goodwill was overwhelming, both with the public and with critics. There's a reuniting of Paul with George Martin. It produces a huge international hit single. It's a good album. It's got good songs. It's got a traditional, I suppose, Paul McCartney, George Martin style of production. Some modern touches to it. Really well received. With hindsight, I still think it's a great album. I see it constantly appearing as number one or number two in Paul's top solo albums. Mm. I'm not convinced that it deserves that status. I think there is some filler there. The Stevie Wonder track, you know, Dress Me Up as a Robber. Those types of things don't lend themselves, I think, to a greatness tag. But it's hugely successful and Paul is back on top. You're right. There is goodwill there. Um, people want to see what he's doing. Uh, I would agree with you. I think Tug of War, you know, context is everything. I think it's slightly overrated and mm. it has some of my favourite songs on it. I'm not doubting that. Um, uh, Ebony and Ivory being the big massive hit and I don't have a problem with Ebony and Ivory the way some people do. Um, 
But I, I, I don't think, uh, I, I don't think it's as great as sometimes we're told it is. But I think the some of the reason it has all that support is that it got a lot of good vibes at the time and it, it surfs that wave. But yeah. it's, uh, it's in some ways, it's his first solo album as well. I know he's put out McCartney one and two, but they are kind of seen as these kind of bookending experimental records, whereas this is the first Paul McCartney record that's supposed to be an equal commercially to like a Wings record. It's the first record that kind of comes out in the context of Wings is over. This is the first Paul McCartney solo record in a way. And I, do you know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. I agree with that. I, um, you know, this is very much the start of his solo career in, in, in a sense. You know, all of those Wings albums come out under different tags. It's either Wings, Paul McCartney and Wings. There's a toing and froing is about, is it a band? Is it Paul and session men or backing musicians and you know these the tug of war sessions emerge out of what are essentially the last death throes of of uh, the final lineup of wings but yeah i think paul's you can argue arguably say paul's solo career starts in 1982 and it's it's i don't want to say it's sort of the perfect launch pad but the circumstances were such that I don't think he could fail uh, to have landed a huge commercially successful album at that time just because of the post-Lennon goodwill. Mm. Ringo's on the album, George Martin is there, George is nearly on the album, and some great songs, I agree. Wanderlust uh, is probably one of my favourite songs, Take It Away, Tug of War. The elements are there, but I think it surfs a wave of goodwill. But, as my granny used to always say, wherever there's a human touch, there's also a lucky town. And uh, in 1983 comes Pipes of Peace, which is very much, it's, it's Tug of War Part 2. You know, you've got war and peace. That's the kind of the thematic link. It's born from the same sessions. It's less good. It is less good. It's, it's lightweight compared with Tug of War. And I think it's very hard at the time and now for it to shake that tag of son of tug of war these are leftovers essentially you know there are new tracks as the the, the michael jackson tracks i think are very good uh, i think say 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 is a great song i think the man is a great song but the rest again a couple of good songs but it just has that lightweight these are things that weren't quite good enough to go on tug of war i suppose is the sense at the time and i think it still carries that plus it has for me what may be his worst ever song, which is "Average Person." I know, I know that's your favorite Paul McCartney song. I'm always a fan of slightly, you know. I, I, there's nothing wrong with granny music. I would say almost, you know, if "Took of War" is slightly overrated, maybe "Pipes of Peace" is slightly underrated because it, it, you know, when it's good, it's very, very good, and you can play the game yeah. of, you know, is there is there is there an album between the two albums called "Tug of Peace" that's an absolute classic. And possibly there is. Yes, there is. There definitely is. And I think everyone should go off and uh, start their own playlists and submit them. Uh, there's a fantastic album there. I can see a twinkle in your eye that you're playlisting in your mind already. Um, it, it, but it is a hit. You know, Pipes of Peace is a UK number yeah. one. Say, Say, Say is a big hit. And um, Eric Stewart appears for the first time. Uh, he's on backing vocals on, uh, on Say, Say, Say. Yes, not for the first time. Take it away. He's there. That's as right. Well. He's on Take It Away as well. I'd forgotten that. Um, Those are just classic 10 TC harmonies uh, there. But yeah, Eric Stewart has sort of entered Paul's orbit in that 81, 82 period where these sessions are producing these two albums. Um, and so 82 took of war, 83 pipes apiece. And in 1984, let's say it, give my regards to Broad Street. Yeah. And. <laughs> And um, again, the irony here is that Paul is still scoring huge hits with the public, you know, so you've got Ebony and Ivory, you've got Say, 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 you've got Pipes of Peace, No More Lonely Nights, fantastic song, will not hear a word said against this song, but the surrounding album and the accompanying film are just awful, 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 awful. So how do you explain then it making $100 million at the box office, Stephen? Oh, it didn't. It didn't. 
That's how I explain it. Yes. There's probably about seven episodes in Give My Regards to Broad Street alone, and we are aware of the clamour. <laughs> Occasionally, people slip into my DMs and say, hey, uh, could you do Broad Street episode? But you still haven't seen it, true? I still haven't seen it all the way through. I've seen, I feel I've seen enough, and I feel I've heard you talk about it enough to know I've had enough. <laughs> well, I, I think, uh, again, in with hindsight, it is an interesting piece of work. It is, the acting is terrible, the story is terrible, but it is an absolute curio, no doubt about it, and it's hard to know why he did some of it. Um, but, as you say, No More Lonely Nights is a big hit, and with echoes of releasing Hello Goodbye while Magical Mystery Tour is coming out, he also puts out We All Stand Together. He's having kind of double big hits in the UK. We All Stand Together perhaps lands better um, on this side of the Atlantic, it's not a big hit in, in in the US, but We All Stand Together by Paul McCartney and the Frog Chorus is, um, everybody knows that song over here. It was a huge hit. And this is what I'm saying. He's, he's having these, uh, I suppose we could say, pop hits. But these are doing nothing for his critical standing. And there's a diminishing return, I think, in terms of the albums, Tug of War, Pipes of Peace, Broad Street, commercially. Despite the hit singles, there is definitely a huge downward trend in his critical standing. In the space of sort of two, two and a half years, he's gone from the critic's darling of 1982 and tug of war to the frog chorus, which I have no issue with the frog chorus, but it ain't rock music. It's pop music. It's kids music. It's Paul has always done this sort of thing. But there had been a sense, I think, in the with the 82 that he was striving for something more than that. He was m- making adult, sophisticated pop record uh, with... Uh, he was making a sophisticated adult pop record with Tug of War. And I think he just seems very unsure, very uncertain of his direction. He's always been eclectic. That's, that's one of his hallmarks. But I think you have a sense, particularly with Broad Street and how big a box office disaster it was, that... He is suddenly, he's, you know, 40 years old. He's not having critical success. He's slightly at sea, and I think his confidence is increasingly being undermined by what's happening. Well, he's also, in terms of the promotional kind of opportunities at the time, he he is very good at music videos, and he's embracing those very, Mm. very well. He is a natural for music videos, and this is the MTV launches in 1981, so... A good music video will take you far at this point. We All Stand Together, I think, is a beautiful song. And, you know, it's the, the guy who was involved in Yellow Submarine and Octopus's Garden and all the rest. I, I don't see why, you know, in, in his own mind, he probably thinks, well, you know, I've done this other type of stuff, but he seems to get twice the uh, the grief for doing something like that, even though, you know, We All Stand Together is a, is a, a beautiful song kind of hiding behind this this cartoon um with a great melody um but and but he's not touring and so he's not really out there no. and he's not winning hearts and minds from town to town um which creates a bit of a vacuum and all he can do really once we get to the end of 1984 and give my regards to broad street and rupert which is something he has spent over a dozen years trying to get onto screen once he's got those out of the way well he's just going to make another album and the, the the point is though he he's going to shake things up because he's been working with George Martin he's been in a bit of a comfort zone and the notion is that something new has to happen there's a very conscious decision you can see this and you can hear it in the in, in the end result there is a conscious decision to go for a modern contemporary sound and to go with something that is more cutting edge and has a harder rock sound. The contrast between this, the sessions and the the direction he's going to go in and the frog chorus or pipes of peace is absolutely stark. And he's very consciously turning his back on that slightly soft, lush style of production that George Martin has brought to the three previous projects. And I think it's interesting as well, because whilst he is turning his back on that style of production and I suppose turning his back on George Martin to an extent, he will, across 86, 87, increasingly start to talk about the Beatles yes. and his place, and he's an ex-Beatle. And in particular, he seems to focus on 1967. It's remarkable how frequently in interviews the words Sergeant Pepper, 
uh, walrus, 1967, all of those terms come up. So he's consciously, I think, trying to do two things. He's trying to reconnect with that particularly fertile period. Because if you think about that sort of 66, 67 period, Paul is, you know, he's producing the best material Mm -hmm. of his life. He's revisited things like Here, There and Everywhere. But at the same time, he's trying to bring a contemporary hard edge to what he's doing. And I think there is a clear and conscious decision, I think, you can see in what he's doing. He's trying to marry up those two things. He's trying to marry up a contemporary rock sound with that creativity, that creative peak from 1967. Um, My memory at the time is, in in the mid-80s, is that... um the Beatles album was Sgt. Pepper. As a kid, when I was trying to yeah. get into music and, um, you know, wondering what to listen to, uh, I think Paul Gambaccini's Top 100 Albums of All Time, which was a big book in 1986, came out. Number one was Sgt. Pepper. Um, you know, the, 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 the general consensus across magazines and Rolling Stones was that Sgt. Pepper was the best album of all time. Sgt. Pepper was the best Beatles album. And we've mentioned this before. You know, I think that has kind of tilted away in recent years um, in the 21st century, but I would still say that it possibly is still the best record, but that's a discussion for another podcast. Um, uh, but all of this is leading up to, you know, the, the 1987 post press to play. There's the full Beatles explosion on CD. So that this is kind of bumbling around in the yeah. in the background. Um, how does uh, how does Paul then get away from George Martin and how is the decision made to to know where to go next? This is where the story starts to get interesting. I mean, it's a fascinating story, but this is really the first mystery, I suppose, in this story. So George Martin is out, a new producer is in. So conscious decision on Paul's part to work with a new producer. Um, I I went back and checked this. Who was the last outside producer that Paul worked with uh, other than George Martin? Um, Chris Thomas, yes. Back to the egg. Chris Thomas, back to the egg. How did that go? Anyway. <laughs> well, what about before that? You had um, Glyn Johns. How did that go? Oh, right, Jess. Same mm, thing. Mm, okay. Mm, so right. yes. if we look at the various protagonists in this long story, Eric Stewart is there. And Eric Stewart tells a couple of versions of this. But he has said, George Martin said to me at the Buddy Holly dinner, I think you should help Paul with his next album. I've got other things to do. I need a break. And I think Paul needs a break as well. So Eric Stewart is quite clear in these interviews that George Martin makes an approach to him. He says very specifically the Buddy Holly Day dinner. So this is the annual event that Paul hosts. And George Martin is off doing other things. I, I, I don't know what George Martin was going off to do in 1985, 1986. I've checked. Mm. I've tried to find out what he was, what he was doing. Was he working on the Beatles CDs? that would come out in 1987. Again, he himself will say not. He said, EMI doesn't consult me until December 86, by which time they were ready to have the discs pressed. They're asking him, you know, what do you think of these mixes? And this results because of the deadline in the first four coming out in mono mixes. So George Martin is not working on any other high profile project. So Eric Stewart comes away from this conversation thinking, I'm going to produce or co-produce with Paul, his new album, absolutely fantastic. And the sessions seemed to start on that basis uh, in March 1985. So before that, before we actually get into the studio with Eric behind the producer's desk, he and Paul have been writing. Mm-hmm. And, and Paul, again, will make great play of this, that he has not written this way with anyone since John Lennon, where they're sitting down with acoustic guitars working on songs and recording demos. And while all of that is committed to tape, and then they take it into this studio, which is just being finished around this time in early 1985. And, you know, for Eric Stewart, you know, he's not a guy who, you know, he's a professional musician. He doesn't need a big break, but we do. And we'll be right back after this. Very good. End of part one. Intermission. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. End of intermission, part two. Welcome back. So, Eric Stewart, we should probably just talk about Eric Stewart for a minute. Uh, It's quite possible our listeners know who Eric Stewart is. Um, if anything, he's best known as being a, you know, a, a founding member of 10CC and uh, a man who was with them for uh, over 20 years. 10CC is now just Graham Goulman and pals. But his pedigree is huge, Eric Stewart, isn't it? It really is. I mean, he is a contemporary of Paul's in the sense that he was in an early 60s band, uh, the Mind Benders. Everybody knows the Mind Benders. So he, he plays with them for from 1963 to 1968. Uh, he uh, is a founding member, as you say, of 10CC, 1972 to 1995. He co-owned Strawberry Studios in Stockport, and we've talked about that studio in the context of uh, the McGear album, one of 1974 uh, episodes. So he is in Paul's orbit, professionally and socially, during the 60s. So he's just one of those people. He's, I suppose... He's like Denny Lane in that sense. Yeah, I mean, he's, you know, I don't uh, damn him with faint praise saying he's the son of Denny Lane because... Um, no, 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 definitely not. I don't think that's fair. Uh, Eric Stewart is a bit of a, a polymath like uh, Paul. You know, he's able to produce, he's able to play, he's able to sing, he's able to, you know, run a studio and a, and a bit of a business. He's able to adapt to a myriad of, of different styles. And that's what we saw in 10CC and with the work that came out of uh, Strawberry Studios. So he's, and he's also, um, he's not shy. He's a confident man. He's a confident man and he is a top drawer songwriter. And he's used to working alone and with collaborators. So yeah, he's, he's perfect fit on paper. Uh, on paper, and as you say, you know he's he's been in and out of the 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 Paul McCartney universe. So you know he recounts one time that the first time he met him was back uh, in the pre Love Me Do days when they he was in a band and they were doing auditions for BBC Radio, and he was in a group called Jerry Lee and the Staggerlees. And he said his group passed the audition, but the Beatles didn't. But I sat there and I watched them. The audience was made up of people who had been in the auditions. I was looking up at them and said to my mates, this is the future of English music. And they all said, no, no, man, Cliff and the Shadows are far better. And I said, well, there's something here that is so special. I mean, I don't know if that's looking back in the past, if that's kind of uh, something he thought of in retrospect, but maybe not. Again, I've I've scribbled in the margin of the notes here, how prescient, if it's true. (laughs) The number of people whose lives were changed by listening to Love Me Do. But uh, yeah, he he goes on in that uh, October 27 interview to say, um, I talked with Paul many, many times after that because we were locals, Manchester and Liverpool. We were just 30, 40 miles from each other. I kept in touch with him all the way through his career and all the way through my career. And he actually came up to Strawberry to record some songs. He socializes with Paul. He says, we also lived close to each other, which we still do now. He lives within half an hour of me. So I got involved with these songs on Tug of War and Pipes of Peace. He asked, do you want to come and do some backing vocals with me and Linda? And I said, I'd be delighted. And he said, we're going to pay you. And I thought, thanks a lot, but I'm just delighted to do it anyway. And this is interesting. He said, working with him and with George Martin, the fifth Beatle, and watching the influence of George on Paul was terrific. He could bring something out of him. So he's been one of my heroes 
all of my life. So he has close-up experience of watching how George Martin and Paul work together as artist and producer and seeing how George Martin can draw the best out of Paul in those situations. So again, ideal to come in and work as a producer or co-producer. Yeah, and you know he slips into the Paul professional universe in about 1981, and uh, you know 10CC are kind of coming into land in the early 80s. They're they're technically on hiatus between 84 and 91, so he does have more time. Um, but he does start working with Paul in 81 in the aftermath of John's death. So he's he's coming in at a a very different time, a very vulnerable time. He, he's talked about this uh, super deluxe edition in, in 2017. There was a 10CC anthology and Eric Stewart gave a very lengthy uh, in, interview to Paul at uh, super deluxe edition. And talking about that, he said, yeah, it was very, very sad. And I was working with Paul down at Strawberry South. We were doing Stevie Wonder and he'd written a song with Paul. Paul is sitting there just looking very, very strangely, just looking into the distance. And I said, are you okay? And he said, yeah, do you know, I just realized that John is really gone and I'm never going to see him again. And I said, bloody hell, you're right. Wow, you must be feeling it a hell of a lot more than I will. And he said, yeah, it's so sad. But he then makes a comment at the end of that answer. And he said, John was the only person who could say to Paul, that's not good enough. We've got to get that better. Or I don't like that. It's crap. He could say that and Paul would listen to him. If I said that to Paul, he'd take my head off. You know, and quite rightly, you know, he's got a great brain. So he's speaking there in 2017. There's some distance between the press to play sessions and the time he's giving that interview. And I think he's reflecting quite well on his analysis of Paul's character and those sessions, as we shall see. Yeah, so he 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 appears, he's doing backing vocals, he lives nearby, there's a, you know, social friendliness um, eventually Paul says, well, you know, do you want to come around and, and write some stuff? And th- this is a big deal because even though there was one or two Denny Lane co-writes, they were kind of just by accident. And I think this is really the first proper co-writing Paul has done since, you know, the days of the Beatles. And the reality is there's different ways to co-write and Paul perhaps has to relearn how to co-write you know, broadly speaking, you know, there's, you know, two people can improvise in a room and come up with something from scratch, uh, or you can improvise in a studio and build on it, or you can bring in the bones of a song or the guts of a song and the other person can flesh it out or just finish it off. Um, and certainly, you know, the Paul and John relationship was very much each song would have a, a main songwriter, you know, certainly after the first year or two, they weren't writing face to face, but he is trying to go back to writing face-to-face here with Eric. He's absolutely doing that. And again, Paul gives an, another promotional interview after the album comes out to Sound On Signed in October 86. And he specifically says, I remembered the old way I'd written songs with John, the two acoustic guitars facing each other like a mirror, but better. Like an objective mirror, you're looking at the person playing chords, but it's not you. I never really tried to do that with anyone else. I'd either sit on my own with a guitar or piano or with Michael Jackson doing lyrics or Stevie Wonder, and I just made that other one up. But it was never across the acoustics, which I'd always find a very complete way of writing. So again, there is a conscious decision on Paul's part to re-engage with that way of working. So if we rewind back to this notion of, you know, was... Eric Stewart asked to produce the album. He's become a friend. They've knocked off a, a, a few songs. Um, George Martin apparently says at this dinner, hey, why don't you produce the next album? Um, but there is this guy called Steve Shrimpton who decides to meet up with Eric and say, hey, do you want to produce the album? So there is an explicit request or ask of Eric to be the producer. Yes, absolutely. So Eric talks about this across a number of years and a number of interviews. And again, back to that Super Deluxe Edition interview in 2017, he said it was George Martin. We were at a dinner, at an awards dinner. So again, we're slightly different. And I know there's a danger in overanalyzing things, but it's what we do. 
<laughs> uh, you know, it, it has gone from being the Buddy Holly Day event to an awards dinner. And then he says, George Martin says to me, Eric, why don't you produce Paul's next album? And I said, what, what? In shock, you know, get my heart pills. Previously, he has said, will you help Paul? Here he's saying, George Martin specifically says, will you produce? So that that's the detail if you sort of parse all of the various sentences. But then he goes on to say, about three days later, Paul's manager, Steve Shrimpton, rang me up and said, Eric, can we have a meeting? Just him and I. I went over to their offices in London, MPL, and sat down. And he said, Eric, would you like to produce Paul's next album? And I thought for about five seconds and said, of course, I'd be delighted. So we started planning all of that. We'd already been continuing to write songs together socially because we saw a lot of each other. Him and Linda and me and Gloria, my wife, we live quite close down in East Sussex. Anyway, before we actually started recording anything at Paul's home studio, he rings me up and he said, oh, by the way, I've got Hugh Padgham coming in to engineer. I said, oh, wow, right, brilliant. He's a very good engineer. He said, but he can't start for about four weeks. So in the meantime, let's go in and do something else. I've got this brilliant English drummer coming in. I've got John Kelly, who's an engineer. We went in, started to play on the first day, a song called Angry. We finished it in a day. I got this great guitar backing track going. Paul played magic bass, singing beautifully, him, Linda and me doing the backing vocals and all that. And then I got home that night and the phone rang and my wife picked it up. It was Paul, and he said, tell your man he's a fucking genius. That track, Angry, sounds so bloody good. I'm delighted, so just tell him that, will you? And of course, I was over the moon about that. Everything is going swimmingly. The great English drummer that's referenced there, by the way, is Martin Chambers uh, from The Pretender, whose drumstick I have sitting on the shelf behind me. But anyway. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, it all kicks off in March 1985. They do these preliminary sessions um, you know, the Hog Hill studio, Paul's windmill studio, which isn't actually on his house, but is near his house. It's about a 25 minute drive away um, yep. and is the famous windmill studios that we see in the Beatles Real Love video that we see Paul regularly in in his Find My Way video. I'm, I'm fascinated by what goes on in Hog Hill studios um, because it's the place he has spent more time recording um, apart from Abbey Road in his lifetime, and we, we know very little about it. Um, yeah, it, it's it's Paul, Eric Stewart, and Martin Chambers from uh, The Pretenders, and uh, they do Angry. They also apparently do a song, uh, Twice in a Lifetime, which I assume is a Talking Head sequel song. That's, that's exactly what he had in mind, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you may find yourself recording in a giant windmill. Um, and uh, it's all very workmanlike because Paul wants to work from 11 in the morning till 8 in the evening, Monday to Friday. It is. So there's a discipline to these recording sessions. The studio, as I say, is just being almost literally finished around them as they're doing this. They work up these various uh, versions of, of songs that uh, Paul and Eric have been working on to the extent that the album is announced. There's a pre-announcement to say, Summertime, new Paul McCartney album coming. So this is from March to July is the aim to get the album out. And um, these, these sessions progress with John Kelly as engineer. He'd worked with various people, including uh, The Clash, I think. But Hugh Padgham has been already enlisted to come in and engineer. He can't. He's working on a Phil Collins album uh, at, at that time. So he, he sort of double booked. Then Hugh Padgham arrives and mm. brings with him a suitcase full of trouble. <laughs> yes. And I, 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 I was very fascinated by that notion that Paul is doing a workmanlike approach starting at 11 in the morning. And I, I, I think it's worth pointing out that in April 1985, he is the father of well, teenagers, more or less. Mary's about 15. Stella's about 12. James is about seven. Uh, they're all going to a local school. And one can't help but think that's why he's not touring. That's why he's, you know, adopting a more workmanlike approach. I think it's one of the reasons why his 1980s rolled out the way they did was just that his his, his kids weren't 
little anymore and, 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 and needed a bit of stability. And I think he liked that himself. It was a time for him to get a bit of stability after all the, the craziness. But, you know, his, his kids are young and he's we know he's quite involved. So he is probably doing the school drop in the morning, maybe, or whatever. Um, but, you know, this is and the studio's down the road from his house. So it's all part of his life. It's integrating the, the, the workman like it's like integrating a nine to five job into your family life, your social life. Mm. So this is how he's approaching it. And they seem to work incredibly efficiently. So, you know, Hugh Padgham arrives. Now, for some reason, the drummers swap out at this point. So Martin Chambers leaves. I do not know why Martin Chambers is replaced. Jerry Marotta comes in. He is a drummer that has worked with Hugh Padgham before. He... Oh, he's got a list of credentials as long as your arm from Hall and Oates, etc. In the seventies, but he's been working with uh, Peter Gabriel, and again, there's the, there's the Hugh Padgham connection. But they work very efficiently, and Eric Stewart will say that it's very efficient. He said we got an American drummer over who was fantastic, and Hugh Padgham started engineering. It was all going well. The sounds were great. Hugh's a great sound engineer, and it seems to be that sort of by March, April, they have an album's worth of material. What I would also like to draw Paul's attention to is we're still waiting for the archive sets to to (laughs) reactivate. There is a ton of material here. There seems essentially to be an entire album's worth of material recorded as a trio um, before before we then get into other sessions and, and the sessions become protracted. We've got an entire album's worth here. Then it stalls. It doesn't happen. The album doesn't come out. So what happened? It's a bit of a what if, because, you know, uh, my memory at the time is that it was very busy, that Paul kept putting out new material, 82, 83, 84, you know, singles, singles, you know, very much a singles artist at that time, a movie, irrespective of whether it was good or not. And to think that, you know, within a year of um, Broad Street, he would have put out another album is impressive. And, uh, Maybe if it had come out, it just would have passed into law and he just could have got on to the next thing. But as you say, there's this kind of 12 months of stalling and playing around. And if we're doing a press-to-play mystery, magical archive collection box set, CD1, I think, has to be the album itself, remastered. Mm-hmm. Uh, CD2, you could argue, could be um, maybe the album with uh, you know a little bit of remixing going on or a little bit of a... D80s are fine. You know, let's just take the saxophone off Stranglehold is kind of what I'm getting at. And then CD3 is the 1985 record that didn't come out of the, the trio sessions. Yes, I, they, I, I've heard some of these on bootlegs and they sound great. They're very raw. The guitar playing is great. You know, Paul's playing electric guitar. Eric Stewart is playing electric guitar. And it's a band performance. And yeah, I think I think there's an entire album's worth of material there, perfect for an archive box set. And I think having heard some of those, I think probably that would be enough in itself to rehabilitate the album. But the sessions just stall. You, you sort of say, well, why did that happen? And Hugh Padgham gave an interview in the autumn of 86, so just before the album will come out, to the Club Sandwich, the, the Wings or Paul McCartney fan club. And he said... Um, the new studio, Hog Hill Mill, was great. The equipment is state-of-the-art. There are windows so you can see outside while you're working, which is unusual. I was down there Monday to Friday working from 11 to late throughout the middle of 1985. Then, since I was contracted to do a Genesis album, later in the year, Paul put his album on ice and worked on other things. So the reason this doesn't come out, according to Hugh Padgham, is that Hugh Padgham wasn't available to Hugh Padgham engineer the album. And he was going off to work on a little album called Invisible Touch. Oh, yeah. So it know, did quite well. It, it did all right. If we're if we're thinking of 1986, that's an album that uh, definitely did trouble the, the, the charts. But it sort of uh, leads to this notion of, well, nobody can do anything without Hugh Padgham. And in fairness, he's had a bit of a golden touch with Genesis and with uh, Phil Collins and engineering the Peter Gabriel albums. And he's one of the people who's seen as what's called this gated snare sound, that big 80s snare drum sound, that he's one of the people who uh, who, who brought it into existence. So at this point, he's about 28 years of age. He's a hot shot get for, for bands. 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, synchronicity, that's a, the police. That's another one of his big yeah. uh, uh, engineering uh, credits uh, recorded in Montserrat at George Martin's studio. But there is a sense, it's 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 like one of those films where you, you see everything from the, the, the eyes of different protagonists at different times, and then you have to try and work out the truth of the situation. But certainly Hugh Padgham is the golden boy at this period. and he But he's not shy about blowing his own trumpet. He's not shy about letting people know that. So again, in 86, in that same interview, he says, and this is to Paul's fan club, he said, I'd recently heard a McCartney song on the radio and thought Paul should rock out more. Then a few days later, I got a call from Stephen Shrimpton. I had several meetings at MPL last year, which was quite hard work at the time as I was working on Phil Collins' No Jacket Required. Again, another quite big album. Going to bed at four, getting up at nine for the meeting and then in the studio at 11. Paul had some songs ready and they were more rocky anyway. That is the official to the Paul McCartney fan club version, but there is a little bit more to that story. Well, Hugh... um uh, uh, as we say in Dublin, isn't backwards and coming forwards. He will go on to very much burn his bridges with Paul and give his opinion about all of this. And it, you know, as you say, this is the official Paul McCartney fan magazine and he's given out that Paul doesn't rock more, which feeds into this narrative of Paul's a weedy wimp who releases cartoon frog songs and, you know, what's his problem and he used to be cool and he's not cool. And, you know, this is in the shadow of John being canonised by the mid-80s and Paul is wearing his jumpers. Yes, we haven't mentioned that issue about John and his canonization, but yes, this is all happening in the background. The other thing that's happening in the background is, and I'm now do 30 minutes on this, is there is a lot of litigation going on in the background between the Beatles and EMI. And I mean, I really <laughs> won't get into that, but there is a lot of <laughs> litigation brewing about audits and accounts and and all the rest of it. So there's a lot happening here. But Hugh Padgham, again, super deluxe edition, he sat down with Paul Sinclair and gave an interview about, it was called Press to Play at 35. And he gives a much more detailed account of how he came to be approached by MPL. So he said he was at somebody's house. He went round to someone's house to get a tutorial on using the then newfangled thing called email. And during the course of that, the radio was playing and on came either the Frog Chorus or Ebony and Ivory. And I said, fucking hell, why doesn't Paul McCartney try to do some serious music instead of these crappy songs that he's doing? What Padgham didn't know was that his tutor's wife was the secretary to Stephen Shrimpton, Paul's manager. So she tells her husband, Steve, he tells Paul, Padgham is summoned to MPL for a meeting with Shrimpton and Paul... In Padgham's telling of the story, Paul then starts asking him, how should I record my album? Who should I get on board? Give me some good players. And it's Padgham that says, Jerry Marotta is the drummer, get Carlos Alomar. And according to Padgham, Paul also says, and who should play bass? If that is correct, Paul, is his confidence is knocked to the extent that he's not confident of his ability to play bass on his own album. This seems very strange, but Padgham is very, very clear at this point that he is being brought in to produce, not engineer. Now, Padgham dates this to late 1984 because he recalls working on No Jacket Required, and that's an album that was recorded between May and December 1984. So at the latest, December 84, Padgham is sitting down in MPL and being asked to produce according to Padgham. So... If all of that is correct, then what seems to have happened is that Paul gave Padgham demo tapes, the acoustic demo tapes that he and Stuart had been working on, to sort of listen to, and Padgham is coming in to produce. Meanwhile, back at Hog Hill, Eric is thinking, he's the producer. Yeah. And, you know, the, the timeline kind of works out because March... Uh, of 1985 is when the sessions begin without Hugh Padgham, but in that first quarter of 85, Hugh Padgham seems to have been given the demos that Paul and Eric have been working on. And he subsequently said, um, Hugh Padgham, I was in my late 20s, still relatively young to the game. I thought it was just an amazing, the opportunity to to do to work with Paul McCartney. When near someone couriered me a cassette to the studio when I was working with Phil Collins or whoever I was working with, I went home incredibly excited to listen to a cassette of those demos he had done with Eric Stewart from 10CC. And I can honestly tell you now that I was underwhelmed when I heard those songs. 
I thought, well, hang on, who am I to know as a little 28-year-old guy that Paul McCartney has given me these songs that are not very impressive? It must be me not being able to sort out and see these songs that are effectively them sitting around a campfire with a couple of acoustic guitars. So he's thinking, well, you know, maybe I can produce these into something that are good. And, you know, maybe... Maybe maybe it's the kids who are wrong. And, you know, so I need to filter out and produce these songs to make them great. So you have this situation where, you know, Eric thinks he's the producer and Hugh Padgham is engineering. You have this situation where Hugh Padgham thinks he's producing and Eric Stewart is just like this kind of player or compadre or co-songwriter or sounding board. And, you know, it, it's, it gets a bit awkward. I think in Paul's defence, he's probably learning on the go. He kind of wants the best of both worlds and... He's previously been able to bend people to his will, like when he's working in Wings, this kind of notion of, listen, we'll we'll we'll, we'll sort it all out as we go along. We'll we'll get there in the end. But um, he's 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 also Paul McCartney. He's been famous for so long, and people are willing to bend to his will. So again, Hugh Padgham talks about this again in that Super Deluxe Edition interview, and he says, "I think it all started off all nicely." I think most people's relationship with Paul seems to go along a similar vein, having read about Flowers in the Dirt. Can you imagine being so famous from about the age of 20 and you've more or less changed the history of music and rock and roll? And the not trying to be rude, but with people around him, it becomes this sycophantic sort of thing. People always saying yes to you. And with all that, I think it slightly rubs the wrong way if anybody says anything else. This arises in the context of a recording session that Eric Stewart talks about and he says, eventually one day things started to fall apart. And I said, via Hugh, can you do that vocal again, Paul? Hugh went over the talk back and said, Paul, can you do that again? He doesn't like it. And I said, he? Hold on, what's happening? So I said to Paul, can we have a chat? We went into the office and had a chat and I said, what's going on? I thought I was supposed to be producing this with you. He said, well, no, Hugh's producing it too. Anyway, we left it that day. I went home. Then I get a phone call from Paul's manager saying, Eric, you're no longer on the production side. And that was it. One day I'm an effing genius. The next day I'm not needed. And I said, oh, okay. A few hours later, Linda rings my wife and said, oh, please tell Eric I'm sorry about this. And I hope we're going to continue to be friends. And she said, well, I don't know. You'll have to speak to Eric about that. We don't know what's happened here. Anyway, Hugh carried on. I didn't. And then Eric's assessment, the album was turned into a pile of crap. Anyway, it turned out to be the worst-selling album Paul had ever released up to that point. Eric seems quite pleased. <laughs> he, yeah. he? <laughs> he does seem, yeah, he does, actually. And, uh, you know, there's another interview um, for Culture Sonar in 2018 uh, where Eric Stewart talks to a friend of the show, Owen Leng. Hello, Owen. Um, where, you know, Eric says, It's unfortunate, really. We started off writing songs like Stranglehold and Footprints on Acoustic Guitars. When we sat down to record them, Hugh Padgett was the brilliant engineer at the time. And Hugh started getting very nasty with me. Um the next morning, Paul manager comes calls to say that Paul doesn't think the production is working out and wouldn't continue working with me. When we started, we had John Kelly engineering before Hugh. I thought it would carry on, but Padgham screwed it. He said he'd walk away if he didn't produce it himself. So Paul let me go. That was very sad. Um, again, Hugh Padgham is uh, not a shy man when talking about this. He really, he really, really isn't. And th- the thing is, there are so many slight variations on the stories where, you know, Paul in in Eric Stewart's first telling there is saying, oh no, Hugh is going to co-produce. Then in another version, when he's speaking to Owen Ling, he said, uh, actually, it's the three of us are going to produce it. It's very hard to get a handle uh, on this. Padgham doesn't get it all his own way. So again, there's another slightly different recollection in the Hard Sounds book, Fab, Eric recounts his suggestion that Paul redo a vocal. Paul then says to Hugh Padgham, what do you think? And Padgham said, I don't think it's good enough. And then suggests that more writing is required. Now, again, you've said Padgham is 28, but he is the star producer slash engineer of the day. And this is the point at which Paul sort of rather infamously turns around and said, Hugh, when did you write your last number one? (laughs) Again, Padgham talks about the fallout from this in Fab, and he said, quote, that one was a real kick in the balls, which you don't forget. There was conflict there, and that was something Paul could do. He could actually wither you with a sentence if he didn't like 
what you said. So there's clearly tension, not only between Eric and Hugh Padgham, but between Padgham and Paul. You know, it it does take some balls to tell Paul McCartney he needs to go and rewrite a song, much less, you know, redo a vocal. But um, there's a lot of tension there. But the interesting thing for me is that Paul has to make a choice here, and the choice he makes is to stick with Hugh Padgham and ditch Eric Stewart. Yeah, he doesn't stick with Eric at all. Eric just says, you know, we never discussed it afterwards, but after another week of it, I said, hold on, this is not working for me. I said, you carry on with it. I'm just going to come down and pick up my guitars. I'm not adding anything here but conflict because it's not good enough. Let Padgham carry on with it. And uh, yeah, he... uh, There's obviously something contractual going on here where Hugh Padgham gets contracted as a producer because Eric Stewart ends up getting a special contribution credit on the album in the end. Yes, you've got to think that probably the the, the arrangement between Paul and Eric is more of a old pal's handshake sort of a deal. Padgham, you know, Hugh Padgham has his own manager Mm. uh, to sort out the contractual stuff. So yeah, Paul is probably locked into Hugh Padgham, but you think, you know, you're Paul McCartney. If you don't want to work with the this guy, you could just cut him loose. Paul could afford to take the financial hit if there was a financial hit. But he decides, I'm not going to work with Eric, who's worked with me successfully on Tug of War, uh, Pipes of Peace, Broad Street, um, you know, appears in the music videos. I've known him for decades. I'm going to cut him loose, risk the ill feeling, and I'm going to stick with Hugh Padgham. And it does seem to me that this is a very clear indication that Paul wants a hit. He wants a contemporary sound. He thinks that Hugh Padgham, probably on the advice of everybody around him, Steve Shrimpton, etc., etc., plus the evidence of his own eyes and ears in the charts, Hugh Padgham is the man that's going to deliver this clean contemporary sound, not Eric Stewart. So Eric is out. But yeah, he gets a credit of sorts. And in 2003, he said to Beatle fan, I contributed to the production side of the album in many ways, but because MPL had a written deal with Hugh Padgham as producer, they decided to give me a special contribution credit. Hugh is a great engineer, one of the best in the world, but a producer, personally, I don't think so. For me, a good producer is someone who can come up with musical directions, change harmonies, suggest different instrumentation, etc. Like George Martin or myself, for that matter. And I think that is the type of producer that Paul has been used to working with up to this point, whether it's, you know, uh, George Martin, Eric, Chris Thomas, again, he fits that, that role that, that Eric is describing there. This is a different thing. And Paul has decided digital recording, 80s sound, contemporary edge. I need Hugh Padgett. Yeah. He, um, He does, you know, Hugh Padgham is not a musician per se. He's a technical producer. And um, Eric Stewart said, you know, at the start of the sessions, Hugh Padgham said to Eric, I couldn't tell you an A flat from a basement flat. Um, And if we kind of look at, yeah, and if we kind of look at Paul's producers in the years since, he does tend to favour producers who do have a standalone musical skill themselves. And, uh, you know, Padgham, again, speaking to Super Deluxe Edition, says, I you know, uh, about the production credit. I I just remember him coming down to the studio quite often and sitting at the back. If he was producing, surely he'd be sitting at the console with me. Like I said, he's a nice guy. That's in reference to Eric Stewart. And, uh, you know, he's when he's asked uh, Hugh Padgham, did Stewart play much on the record? He just says, oh, I think he played acoustic guitar on some songs. There's no love lost between those two guys. There clearly isn't at all. You know, he says, I thought Eric was there because he'd written what turned out to be some quite average songs with Paul McCartney. That's how I remember it. All I can say, and I keep saying it, is that he's a nice enough bloke, but if he wants to say rude things about me, he can. And you can't help thinking, this is a man who won. This is the guy that, <laughs> you know, won out in the end. And he's, he's, he's trying to be, oh, I'm being quite magnanimous. He's a nice guy, but at the same time, he only played a bit of acoustic guitar. He wrote some average songs. Yeah. Who cares? I'm Hugh Padgham. He's Hugh Padgham. And uh, the album, certainly, when we listen to it nowadays, has the Hugh Padgham sound, which we will 
um, continue uh, in future episodes. It does make me wonder, was there somebody else who should have been producing the album at the time? I'm, I'm, I'm often quite obsessed with the Queen album Hot Space, which I think should have been produced by Niall Rogers, and Queen should have done what David Bowie did with Let's Dance, and, and, and that was the sound that they were going for. And I wonder if the 80s producer that he should have had at that point in time, although he would go on to work for them later, was Trevor Horn. Somebody with a, a proper musician's, you know, someone who's a standalone musician, what a, a 1985 Trevor Horn, uh, Paul McCartney album might have sounded like. Who knows? I think that would have taken her up the charts. No, well, we can but dream. But yeah, could could be, could be, could be, could be. <laughs> but this is only the start of the press to play saga. I think we're doing seven episodes on this. Seven, this is going yeah. to outstrip Alan Klein. <laughs> Um, but what do you think, everybody? Um, maybe we can, you know, treat, uh, maybe we can uh, get you to all go back and listen to Press to Play before we come back to talk more about the sessions and what got recorded um, next week. We remain available in all the usual places. The website, nothingisrealpod.com, which is your gateway to our socials, uh, Nothing's Real Facebook group, X, Instagram. We're trying to do more on Instagram these days, folks. Uh, Mastodon. And I want to thank all our ACAST Plus supporters. We've got over 50 episodes on ACAST Plus now. Um, whole other alternate uh, nothing is real universe is there so why not join us and uh, we've got a nothing is real uh, mailing list on the website nothingisrealpod.com and we've got an email address nothingisrealpod at outlook.com so there's loads of ways that uh, we can be interrupted <laughs> um, but for now my name's Jason Carty my name's Stephen Cockcroft and this has been Nothing Is Real thanks for listening Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.